Um, I also want to say thank you to uh, Daniel Boyd, who I just spilled coffee all over his feet, and a couple others in the second row. Uh, and so to the preteen boys who did the same thing in the row across the aisle from me, um, if your senior pastor does it, you can do it too. It's okay. Nobody's perfect. Um, have you ever been in a situation like I was this past Wednesday? I was going to get lunch with a church member, and I had parked, and I was walking up to the doors of the restaurant, and I, I saw this gentleman walking in from the other side of the parking lot that looked a lot like the guy that I was going to meet. Notice the way I phrased that, looked a lot like the guy I was going to meet. And, um, you know, my eyesight's um, what many would say um, is poor. Actually, actually, the optometrist says, without corrective lenses, I'm legally blind, so not great. Um, and I shouldn't have trusted my, my distance eyes. Because uh, I see him, and I start to do the, 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 I start to wave. I get to the point of no return, right? Where like, this isn't just like a casual hand movement. Like, I am waving at this guy. And that's when I realize, ah, this is not the guy I'm meeting. Um, and he looks at me, and it's that look of like, we just don't know how to function in society when someone we don't know is kind to us. We're like, what, what do you want from me? Who are you? What's happening? And I, so I had to do the weird like, oh, it's my hair. I have a cramp in my shoulder. Keep walking, please. Let's not talk about this. Um, you think you recognize someone as they get closer, you realize it's not who you thought they were. Same thing happens in the story of Palm Sunday, really the story of Holy Week. We've got this person, teacher, savior, Jesus, who's at the beginning of the Gospels seems like far ways off. In fact, in some of the Gospels, he's just a prophecy. And He's getting closer, he's getting closer until Holy Week. Finally, we begin to see him face to face. And who we see is maybe not who we thought we were receiving. It's certainly not who the people of Jerusalem thought they were receiving on Palm Sunday. You know, it's, it's, it's fun and cute to see the kids waving the palm fronds and to sing Hosanna. But the reason that they're waving palm fronds and singing Hosanna is because the people of Jerusalem think that they're receiving not some hippie on a little horse, but they, they think they're receiving a war hero on a stallion. Like they are ready for the Messiah, the second coming of King David, the one who's going to lay waste to these Roman occupiers, who's going to allow them to build a new nation, a new kingdom, who's going to raise a sword against the wicked and fulfill all those good and bloody prophecies of the Hebrew Bible. But that's not, that's not who they receive. That, that's not who comes up close. And so out of that conflict, we see really the, the passion of Holy Week. As people begin to realize one by one, this is not the person that we expected. And when they begin to lay that down, what they pick up in its place, it can be difficult. And it, it invites us to stop and to, and to wonder how we see ourselves in this story. So our scripture today is not going to be the Palm Sunday scripture because I'm in charge and I can do what I want. Um, <laughs> It's, it's going to be in, in Luke chapter 22. This is where Jesus is arrested. Um, he knows he's going to be arrested. He's actually predicted it. He, what you're going to see is Judas is going to come up to him and, and offer him a welcoming kiss. And, and Jesus knows that this kiss by Judas is meant to signify to the other leaders, uh, the, the religious elites and those who are there to arrest him. That's going to tell them who they're there to arrest. So in verse 47 of chapter 22 in Luke's gospel, it says this. While Jesus was still speaking, a crowd appeared, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, and Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the human one with a kiss? 
When those around him recognized what was about to happen, they said, Lord, should we fight with our swords? He had just told them to go and get a couple of swords a moment ago. One of them struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Jesus responded, stop, no more of this. And he touched the slave's ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come to get him, have you come with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a rebel? Day after day, I was with you in the temple, but you didn't arrest me. But this is your time when darkness rules. Stop there for, for a moment. You know, the, the line that stuck out to me this week as I was reading this text again is when, when the disciples see what's happening, there's this line, when those around him recognized what was about to happen, the chief priests and the, and the temple guards and the disciples, when they recognized what was about to happen, you know, what it made me realize is that each of them is recognizing something that, that isn't actually what's about to happen. Jesus knows what's about to happen. Everyone else thinks they recognize what's about to happen. Starting with not just the disciples, but the chief priest. We don't get his name in Luke's gospel, but John's gospel is kind enough uh, to share his name, Caiaphas. And, you know, this is corroborated by historians from that era. Caiaphas was the chief priest for 18 years in Jesus' day. 18 years. That's a long tenure uh, as a chief priest. He was the longest tenured chief priest during the New Testament era. Caiaphas was really good at his job. And what made a good chief priest was being able to carefully balance the systems of power that allowed you to occupy that position. You didn't end up a chief priest by accident. You had to appease the Roman authorities who were your overlords, and you certainly were not going to upset them and keep your job. You also had to keep the elites in Jerusalem, the, the religious inner circle, you had to keep them happy so that they didn't have a vote of no confidence and cast you out, right? So you had all these different powerful people and systems that you had to carefully balance. Caiaphas was so good at this, he kept that job for 18 years. What he thinks he recognizes is happening is that Jesus is this Messiah, this, this second coming of King David, and what he's going to do is quite literally lead a rebellion. Because this has happened before. In our canonized Bibles, we don't have the book of the Maccabees like, like uh, the other Bibles do in the Apocrypha, but the Maccabees tell the story of the Maccabean revolt. This is something that was fairly recent memory for the people of, of Israel. This would only have happened in the last couple hundred years, and it was a similar idea where you had this young guy, he gets a lot of support, people think this is the second coming of King David, and they start this violent rebellion, and it gets squashed. And I mean, it is merciless the way that the Roman authorities respond. That's what Caiaphas is thinking. He's thinking, oh gosh, I'm about to have another Maccabee on my hands, and I'm going to be the one held responsible because I allowed this to happen under my watch. And so he's treating Jesus. When Jesus says, have you come with swords and clubs? Like I'm a, the word in Greek, there is really the word for rebel. That's the word they would have used in those times as rebel. Have you come like I'm some rebel, this leader of a rebellion that's going to raise swords up against the Caesar? That's not who I am. That's who the chief priest thinks he is. It's also, quite frankly, who I think the disciples think he is. The disciples, and again, Luke doesn't name names. John will. John says it's Peter. Um, John likes to name names. 
They draw their swords. Okay, we know what's about to happen. They're going to try and take our king, and, and we're here to lead an insurrection. We're, we're here to lead a rebellion, so we're going to draw swords, and here we go. It's our time to shine. And he lops off the slave's ear, and Jesus says, whoa, stop. Enough of this. This is not why I'm here. It's interesting. I, I love the author, Barbara Brown Taylor, uh, and I love her memoir, Leaving Church. And in it, she talks about when we get in this posture like Peter's in of trying to defend God, trying to defend our King, our Lord, what have you. And she says, as a general rule, I would say that human beings never behave more badly toward one another than when they believe they are protecting God. Oh, thank you, Sister Barbara Brown Taylor. It's true. I know it's true because I've gotten the emails and the phone calls about our sign out front this week. I don't know if you noticed it. It says something really audacious like we want to love and protect trans children. And I've been told... Um, you know, it's funny. I, I, I can identify with Jesus because I, I got a voicemail the other night at 1110 on my office line. It's funny I didn't pick up. Um, <laughs> But I'll, I'll just say, you know, I, I'm someone who invites conversation. I've responded to every message I've received. I don't know that I anticipate changing anyone's heart in a moment, but I'll absolutely stand up. Not that I feel like I need to defend God, but I do need to defend the students that I see sitting in our front two rows. And I'll be darned if I'm going to let anybody tell us as a church who we can and cannot call sacred. That's my commitment. And I know it's yours too, which is why we as the pastors and staff can have confidence to put messages proudly on display that tell the community who we are and who we're here for. Because for every one of those voicemails or emails that can come from folks thinking they're defending God, we get dozens more who walk through these doors and say, I'm so glad that I found a church like this. So I guess keep calling me at midnight and I still won't pick up. Um, <laughs> But what does Jesus recognize in this moment? Jesus recognizes that they've got it wrong. They think this is all leading to some big bloody battle that's not actually going to happen. It's going to be violent, but it's not going to be violent in the way that they expect. Jesus is here not to draw a sword, but to allow himself to be placed upon a cross to prove that the cycle of violence can in fact end if we want it to. See, Jesus is looking at this scenario through the eyes of God. And what has God seen? God has seen empires rise and fall before. God has seen the empire of Egypt rise and fall, and the empire of Babylon rise and fall, and the empire of Assyria rise and fall. And now the empire of Rome has risen, and one day Rome will fall. And then the empire of, it goes, and it goes, and it goes. And it's always this cycle of violence. An empire rises, more people pick up swords. They bring an end. They say, finally, we've brought an end to this bloody empire. And they build a new bloody empire and jesus says don't you see that this is not the way you end this you got to put down the swords enough of this you don't stop the cycle of violence with more violence you stop it by imagining a different way the question at the heart of jesus's recognizing what's taking place is a question of justice you know, the justice that's being practiced in those days is, quite frankly, the, still, the justice we still practice today. It's that retributive justice that's focused on punishing through violence, if necessary, things that have happened that were bad that need to be corrected. And it's about 
punishing the, the, the victimizer and making sure they know just how evil and bad they are, and that's the way you bring about justice. But Jesus is offering a different vision, what we might call restorative justice, that as hard as it may be, sees both victim and victimizer as beloved children of God. Even the, the servant who's about to bind him in chains, Jesus heals his ear. That's a difficult thing to witness, but it's the kind of image that Jesus casts for us as for what justice truly looks like, offering the kind of healing to everybody because there are no evil people. There are evil actions. There are sinful people. There are people who are way off base as to what righteousness looks like. But every single person, even the one who's about to bind him in chains is a beloved child of God. Jesus is going to go to the cross on that truth. I wonder where it could lead us. So next we see um, how Peter specifically responds to this recognizing now, now that Jesus is really up close and he realizes, whoa, this is not the party that I signed up for. We're not going to fight. Jesus is just going to hand himself over. He's just going to allow them to, to kill him like this. What is happening? And it says this, after they arrested Jesus, they led him away and brought him to the high priest's house. They brought him to Caiaphas's house. And Peter followed from a distance. And when they let when they lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Then a servant woman saw Peter sitting there in the firelight, and she stared at him, and she said, This man was with him too. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I don't know him. A little while later, someone else saw him and said, No, 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 you're, you're, you're one of them too. But he said, Man, I am not. Peter was just very good at, like, generic, Woman, man, I'm not learning any names. An hour or so later, someone else insisted, this man must have been with him because he is a Galilean too. And Peter responded, man, he did. I don't know what you're talking about. At that very moment, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the Lord's words, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and cried uncontrollably. And the same Peter who just a moment ago was willing to lop off someone's ear for his Savior is now unwilling to even be associated with him. This is a difficult story to read because when we see Peter, we see someone who's, who's terrified to join with Christ now that he understands what's really going to happen. We can see that fear and then that guilt just overcoming him. It's a difficult scene to, to look at. And, and yes, if you know the story, we know that, that Peter has a redemption arc in the end, but we need to sit here with him and wonder to ourselves even, would I have responded any differently, really? You know, because it's easy to point the finger at Peter and say, dude, how did you not know? He told you the rooster was going to crow, and you still did it anyways. But how many times have I known what the faithful decision was to be made, and, and I didn't choose it? And rather than allowing myself to be associated with the same Christ who, who submits to that self-sacrificial love, instead I distance myself and I say, man, say, woman, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. Now that can feel convicting, but I also want us to be careful not to enter into an unending cycle of violence against ourselves that looks like being trapped in self-guilt and self-shame. I don't think that's what Jesus is really inviting us into, and I know it's not what he invites Peter into. 
See, we can forget that, you know, nowadays we read these scriptures just little pieces at a time, but, but back in the day, the gospel was a story that would have been told from start to finish with a crowd like this gathered around for hours, because we didn't have March Madness or anything else to distract us in those days. This was entertainment, right? Um, and, and if you were listening to the Gospel of Luke from start to finish and you got to this part, it would only be about, what, five or seven minutes before Jesus is resurrected. And then we see that, that moment of reconciliation between Jesus and Peter where Jesus invites Peter into that, that loving forgiveness space. And so I think it, we would do well to remember that Jesus offers that forgiveness also almost immediately when he sees Peter again. And I think that can help inform us as, as we seek to be faithful disciples, but we inevitably prove to be less than perfect disciples uh, to understand how we can see ourselves and we can see Jesus. You know, Peter is the honest picture of a person who truly tries to be faithful. I try to be faithful and I end up with egg on my face on a routine basis. I trust that you do too. That's why Peter, I think, is such a helpful character for us in Scripture because he's so willing and leaps into action and then he just falls flat on his face. And I think, yeah, that's pretty much how it feels. But then Jesus is also the honest picture of the God who meets us with grace in our less than perfection. That, that cycle of self-guilt, that, that's a violent cycle that God does not intend for us. And so I invite you out of that this Palm Sunday and to enter into that forgiveness of Christ. But then the question becomes, so, so what kind of follower, what kind of ally is Jesus looking for in this moment, in this moment of arrest, in this moment of being brought to heal by the powers and authorities of his day? And I think for an answer to that question, an answer to that question, we could look really to the scene that comes right before he's arrested. Let's back up for a moment. This will be the last story we read today. This comes to us in chapter 22 once again, but back in verse 39, the moments before he's taken away. It says, Jesus left and made his way to the Mount of Olives, it's this area that's right next to Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, as was his custom. This is where he would go and pray, and the disciples followed him. And when he arrived, he said to them, pray that you won't give in to temptation. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and prayed. And he said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup of suffering away from me. However, however, not my will, but your will must be done. And then a heavenly angel appeared to him and strengthened him. He was in anguish and prayed even more earnestly. His sweat became like drops of blood falling on the ground. And when he got up from praying, he went to the disciples. He found them asleep, overcome by grief. He said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so that you won't give in to temptation. In this story, I see Jesus calling them, encouraging them into, into three ways of being, both as followers of Jesus and allies of the kingdom that he seeks to build. The first is he invites them into this posture of humility quite literally a posture of prayer. And sometimes we misunderstand prayer as like going to Santa Claus and giving him a wish list and then saying, great, I'll see you on the 25th, right? And that, that's not really what prayer is. Prayer can be many things, but, but one thing that prayer is is it's a way for us to open ourselves physically, open our hearts and open our minds as well to receive God in a new way, to allow God to come up close and to maybe even be surprised at the God whom we meet in that up-close moment. 
Prayer is also a position of openness where we could receive perhaps a perspective or a truth that we didn't have before. You know, I'll be quite honest. Several years ago, I'm not sure that I, not, I'm not even, I'm not sure, I'm certain that I would have had very different feelings about the message that's up on our sign right now. Because I had a very different understanding, or really lack thereof, as to what all of this entails. And not that I'm trying to cast myself as a hero because I'm, I'm far from it, but what I'm grateful for is the people in my life who helped me to adopt a posture of prayer and openness to receive something that I didn't know before. A whole lot of things that I didn't know before to allow me to live in a truth that now I understand in a deeper and better way because guess what? God invites us into relationships with people when we open ourselves up to it. And so my question for myself, I always come back to as someone who, as an Enneagram One and just an arrogant young man, uh, can be so certain of what I know and what I believe, I wonder when's the last time we allowed ourselves to truly have our hearts or our minds changed by adopting a posture of prayer and a posture of openness. Because as we talk about humility and openness, it's very easy to turn our attention to someone else and go, yeah, I really hope they adopt a posture of prayer and openness. That'd be good for them. <laughs> Whoops. That may, be not as what Jesus hope, that may not be what Jesus is hoping we receive. Second thing is I think Jesus calls us to be awake, to be humble and to be awake. Quite literally, he asked the disciples to wake up because they've fallen asleep. But notice why they fall asleep. They fall asleep not because they're tired, not because Jesus kept them up too late because they were pulling an all-nighter lock-in in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're asleep because they're overcome by grief. When I read that, I think about living today in a world where we are more connected and more aware of all of the evil and the darkness that we encounter than ever before. We are so aware of communities throughout this earth that 100 years ago we wouldn't have even been aware, we wouldn't have known about, much less known current events within. And I, I think that's good. I think it's good that we are connected, that we can be aware in this way that we haven't been before. But it can also be overwhelming, amen? It can be extremely overwhelming, especially when a lot of the national and international media calls our attention to things that we can feel, quite frankly, we have very little power or control over. I think Jesus calls us to stay awake because to stay awake, to, to allow oneself to not be overwhelmed by the breadth and depth of evil and darkness that we encounter, it's really a call to resist that evil and its desire to overwhelm us. I think that evil things in this world really do appreciate it when we are asleep. The reality is the sum total of evil in the world is overwhelming. It absolutely is overwhelming. When we start to add up all the things that we notice, even in just one week, we've got natural disasters, we've got mass shootings, we've got the war in Ukraine that's still happening, we've got stories that I haven't even mentioned that you wish I would in this litany. There's so much going on, even in one calendar week. And here's what I want to say just as a pastor. There's a difference between being informed and inviting oneself to be overwhelmed. I think it's good to be informed. I think we should be awake and alert as to what's happening in the world around us. And I also think we should allow ourselves the freedom to place boundaries upon what we consume and what we don't and to invest ourselves in those places where we know we can actually, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have the deepest impact. Because there's a lot of headlines that get my brain and my heart moving this week. But you know what? I'm really concerned about, for instance, uh, the, the, the charter school situation in, in our state right now. And as a pastor who wants to support Dobie Pre-K and RISD, I'm really concerned that there's so much overwhelming us, we're missing the fact that public education is about to be underfunded if we're not awake. i got to stay awake. 
I could get so overwhelmed by the needs of this world, I could miss the needs of my daughter who's sitting here in the front row and sometimes wonder, Dad, I know you see all the hundreds of people in your church. Do you see me? i got to stay awake. Sometimes I fall asleep. i got to stay awake. The last thing we're called to be is courageous. And courageous is one of those words that can mean many different things, and Jesus helps us to see what he means by courageous. It's not courageous with a sword on a stallion with shining armor. It's not courageous in the way that we tend to talk about it culturally. But it's the courage that comes from offering oneself in a self-sacrificial, self-giving way to the kind of love, the kind of faith, the kind of work that we know lives beyond us, whether or not we see the outcomes that we want to in this life. It's the kind of courage that comes from offering one's life to that work regardless. To trust that that kind of love truly does win in the end. Jesus goes to the cross and resurrects, and Rome is still Rome. Caesar is still in charge, and there will be another Caesar, and another Caesar, and another Caesar, and another Caesar. And a few more Caesars. But that doesn't make his love any less worth it. Because it's not about simply conquering one bloody empire to build another one. It's about rethinking what empire means altogether. It's about rethinking what courage means altogether. It's about offering our lives in a way that can win and live on even if and when we don't. May we be invited to be humble and awake and courageous this holy week. May it ever be so. Amen.